Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Officially concluding our 21 days of prayer and fasting. Right, So some of you seem just a little more spry today than you have the last few weeks. I, I know you got close to Jesus, and now you can get close to donuts and other things again, right? But I hope and I pray that those of you that participated in these three weeks would say that it was an overall positive experience for you as it relates to your, um, your journey in Christ-likeness and becoming like Jesus, or more importantly, as surrendering to what the Holy Spirit is doing as he transforms us into the image of Jesus. Because maybe you've heard me say this before, we have a mission here at Echo Community Church, and there's so many of you that are part of it. I've had the privilege of seeing all, almost all of you come in to this church family. And our mission is today, what it's always been, is we are passionately committed, and those of you know can say with me, to being and making disciples of Jesus. A disciple is someone who is involved in the process of Christ-likeness. We're on a journey that is gradual. Amen? It's gradual. It doesn't happen all right away. right? Gradual, daily, surrendering to and cooperating with the Holy Spirit as he fits us together inside in a way that we resemble the life that Jesus lived. That's what it really looks like for us. And so when we come together on Sundays... Um, What we get to do is we get to learn together, we get to pray together, we get to sing together, we get to talk together, we get to drink caffeine or not caffeine or hot water or whatever together. Our kids get to play and learn and grow together. You hear the word I keep repeating? I'm I'm testing to see if you're with me. Look, 9 a.m. was really with me today and you had two extra hours, so come on now, right? Together. That's what's different about today than any other week. How many of you have an internet connection? Half of you don't? Seriously? What world is this? How do you do anything? No, I'm just kidding. Um, If you have an internet connection, can you access Bible study at home? Yeah. Can you access the best preachers in the world anytime you want? Yeah. Can you give in an offering from home now? Yes. Some of you don't trust it, but it... You can. Can you, can you access worship music and worship Jesus at home anytime you want, in your car, with your eyes open, please, on the beltway? Can you do that? Yeah. You recognize it with technology. You can kind of do everything we normally do on a Sunday, not here. You can study the Bible. You can worship. You can give. You know what you can't do is you can't be shoulder to shoulder in the same space with a brother or a sister together online that you can in church. There's just, and not that one is bad and another is best. It's just we recognize that when we come together, we really want to experience the together part of being here. Because there's just something a little bit different that you experience in the way that God likes to share his presence with us that happens corporately or together than it does alone. And I experience Jesus when I'm by myself. Have you ever experienced Jesus when you're by yourself? Sure. And there's, it's sweet and it's personal 
And it's wonderful, and it's necessary, and it is a benefit of being a Christian. It's a benefit of having the Holy Spirit living inside of me. But you know what? God also wired us to enjoy the together part, to studying together, singing together, giving together, serving together. So today we're together. And I hope that as you pick it, if you haven't picked a team yet, pick the Eagles. We'll we'll cheer together. Hopefully celebrate together tonight. I can't force that on you. That's an abuse of my platform as a pastor. You pick whatever team you want, right? But we've been studying together uh, in a series called Baby Steps. Now, when it comes to that actual term, Dave Ramsey applies that term to getting financially healthy. Not my words, his term. And he talks about taking small steps with respect to how we manage money that lead us in the direction of having less financial pressure in our life, feeling a sense of freedom from money rather than being a slave to money. And it gets us on a trajectory moving that way. And you have access to all of that through that uh, investment that we've made in uh, the Ramsey Plus subscription that we've made available to church. If you don't have it, just make sure we have your email address. We'll send you the link to our portal, and you can set that up, and you'll have that for free. We do have a group of about 24 adults that aren't in the room today, but they're in the conference room with John and Rajiv and Bob, and they are going through a more intensive nine-week financial peace university. So out here, we're just looking at more generally about what the Bible teaches us about money. If you did a Google search, you'd find more than two thousand references to money in the Bible. That's a lot of references. And I want to be clear, there's not 2,000 lessons about money in the Bible. It's just mentioned 2,000 times. So that means at the very least, money was a thing in the ancient world. If you ask me to give you a definition, I say money is a means of, what do you think word we put? It's a means of exchange. You can take money. Some of you don't remember what paper money is, but you can take money And you can give it in exchange for things and stuff, right? Oh, boy. Okay. Do we at least, listen, I know it's Baltimore. I just need to know if you got it and I can move on. Do you at least understand money as a means of exchange that you can give it in exchange for things and stuff? Gotcha. Okay. For your rent, for your mortgage, for food, for clothes, for shelter, pretty much almost anything. You can exchange money for that thing or for that experience. That's been a reality since way back in the ancient world, and God understands that. There has to be some sort of way of exchanging money for things in order to make the world kind of operate and function. As a matter of fact, work is an exchange. Do you know that? You're exchanging your labor for hopefully money. Right now, how many of you feel? I won't ask you. How many feel like you're getting the better end of the year? That you're getting much more money than you deserve. Most of us don't feel that, and if you do feel that way, keep it to yourself. And I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. 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 Right? There's an exchange. You're exchanging labor for money, and then you're taking that money and exchanging it for things and stuff. And in a worldly mindset, we hope that at the other end of exchange, that there's enough things and stuff that we can eventually have to make us feel some kind of way, peaceful, successful, content happy. And sooner or later, you find out that that, that's a bottomless pit, right? But the Bible talks a lot about money because it was a reality, and it's a very central part of just existing on the earth. 
So there's 2,000 references in the Bible. The Bible talks about spending, saving, budget, debt, loaning, interest, retirement, compounding interest. It talks about all these different basic financial principles. And I don't know about you, but with the relationship that I have with God, I'm pretty interested on what the God of the universe has to say about money as much as I am Jim Cramer or Dave Ramsey or anybody else. I pretty much trust that the God of all the universe, if he's as wise as I believe he is, probably has some good counsel for me about money. Wouldn't you agree? So the Bible does teach about how we manage our money so that it doesn't manage us. And through the, you know, through Financial Peace University, they're going into granular detail. I'm not going to go that much in detail. We're just looking at big concepts, evergreen ideas. In other words, things that are true then and they're true now. They're culturally neutral. They are just true no matter who you are, no matter when you're born. The evergreen principles, the one we looked at last week, is that understanding wisdom with managing our money starts by you saying, I recognize I'm a steward, I'm not an owner. God is the owner of all things, all resources, money, opportunity, skills, where and when I was born, where and when I grew up. And my job, especially as a believer, is to have an awareness. I am the steward. I have the benefit of receiving from God a certain amount of resources in my life. And it's different from everybody else. It's custom to me. And I recognize that there's coming a day where the owner will ask me to give a report, an account on what I did with what he gave me. So wise Christians, they get the fact that we're stewards. We're aware of what we've been given. So the pressure's not on us to be the owner. We can just be the steward. We can be content with a lot, a little, or in the middle because it's not ultimately up to me. It's up to the Lord's discretion. And then I'm also smart enough, wise enough, and motivated enough to want to use what he gave me to set up for myself a favorable report to give in the future. Now, as long as you think that you're the owner, that message is incredibly offensive because it feels like God's trying to tell you what to do with what's yours. Stewards say he's just trying to advise me on what to do with what is his, and it feels different. One, you feel offended and standoffish. The other, you feel thankful and relieved, okay? That was last week. This week, I am forcing myself to teach through a parable I've avoided for 25 years because it's hard and uncomfortable, and I don't like it, if I can just be honest. Let me scratch it. I should never say that, because then you're thinking, well, what were you in the other moments where you weren't being honest? No, I'm going to continue my on. I'm going to be transparent here. I've avoided this parable intentionally, and I love parables. I get sucked in because they're awesome stories, and Jesus is, man, could you imagine him having a, like, if he could make a screenplay, how amazing it would be? Like, you will appreciate today the layers to his storytelling. And I'm going to just jump the shark and tell you exactly why this parable is hard. It's because in his story, there is a hero who is a crook. And the hero in the story gets complimented by the victim in the story. And then when the story's all over, Jesus doubles down and then he compliments the criminal. I don't like it. I don't understand why Jesus holds up for us a hero to imitate that's a bad dude. Now, it's not the only time that he does this in a parables. There's the unjust judge. There's a few times. I will tell you, there's kind of two different categories of parable that Jesus told. And I think we talked about this last week. Parable 
is the word from where we get the English word parabola. So all you geometry nerds, we're bonding together this morning. It means to lay next to. So what Jesus recognizes, I've got to explain. Here was his assignment. I have to take everything I know about the infinite, which is heaven, the kingdom of God, how it operates, and I'm going to take on the role of a finite human being and have to find vocabulary to explain to finite brains what the infinite is like. Did I lose you in there? I hope I didn't. Do you understand the challenge? Do you understand why people were confused a lot? Because Jesus is saying, I have to take things that you don't even have a vocabulary for because your brain can't totally get it. So the best thing I can do is give you an analogy. In fact, if you read a lot of A.W. Tozer's books, my favorite book of A.W. Tozer, my favorite Christian book, or favorite book besides the Bible, is The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And he says, here's the challenge of humanity. God is infinite and we're not, and my eternity depends on whether I know him or not. How can a finite person know an infinite? You can't. Your mind can't jump that fence. So he says, the best case scenario is we know God by analogy. In other words, we say, here's something I can understand, and I have to use it as a trampoline or a bridge to help me understand what he is like. In other words, for this season of reality, I can't know God exactly as he is or all that he is because my brain can't handle it. It's limited. But I need to know what God is like. So it's important for me to know him accurately because a lot of my analogies that I project onto, I'm way off in left field. I'm very sorry. Uh, I'll get back into the notes. I knew I was supposed to print these out. I said to my wife, I lost my notes, but I need to print another coffee. Or I'll copy. Coffee's on the mind. Uh, fast is over. Yeah. Stop the stream of consciousness here. Let's focus. Focus. Okay. We can, the best case scenario is we can only know God is what he's like, so we want to make sure that we know him accurately. Because it's possible that when you think of what God is like, he's other than what he actually is. I don't want to worship a God that's other than what he is. That's an idol. And so when it comes to these parables, Jesus is saying he recognizes we human beings, we would value and benefit from knowing what the kingdom of heaven is like. But if he just told us, we couldn't handle it. So he tells, he brings parallel stories that we can relate to. And then he uses that story to point to an arrow of one characteristic about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And to be fair, a third of Jesus's parables talk about money. Money isn't the main lesson in those one-third parables, but it is in a number of them. Because Jesus recognizes that money is a matter of exchange. He also taught this, money is amoral. Do you know what I mean by that? That's different from immoral. What does amoral mean? Not good or bad. It has no, in and of itself, has no morality. And I know you might not think that, but that's true. Money is evil. Money is awesome. It's neither. However, watching how someone handles or uses money will tell you about the morality of their heart. That's what Jesus says. Money in and of itself is, has its morality neutral. However, watching and studying how someone manages, uses, spends, will be an arrow that point. He says your heart and your money are very closely connected. And money doesn't change your heart. It reveals your heart. Okay, is what he gets after. Because there are those who think that Jesus was money-obsessed. And so Christians should be too. That Jesus was wealth obsessed because of how much he talked about it. But if you summarize all of his teaching down 
to one little section, and you took all of his two, you know, all of his parables. There's one theme he was trying to drill home. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, and I won't go deep into it today because we're going to teach the whole Sermon on the Mount verse by verse starting in March. But here's what he says, and I bet, I, I shouldn't bet in church. I would imagine that many of you have heard this, whether you have a familiarity with the Bible or not. Matthew chapter 6. So store not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can corrupt and where thieves can break through and steal. In other words, what he's saying, at the end of the day, here's what you know. Any wealth you have here on earth eventually will dissolve and decay. Or you can't take it with you. Or someone can steal it. Think about it. The wealthiest people in the world have to spend even more money protecting the wealth that they have. The more you have, the more you have to protect what you have. So he says, don't be obsessed with building wealth on earth. He also doesn't say that having wealth on earth is bad or sinful. Nor does he say that the only way that God blesses people is through wealth. You just got to be careful about what he's saying and what he's not saying. He says, however... You should be storing up wealth. And you're like, wait a minute. He says, don't store up wealth, but store up wealth. Lay not up for yourselves treasure. Store not up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust corrupt, thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust don't corrupt, where thieves can't steal it. Because where your treasure is, That's where your heart will be. Where your money is, your heart will be. Look at where your money goes. It's very connected to your heart. That's where your money goes. Reveals some of our life priorities and our heart's desires and wants. And what Jesus' whole teaching on wealth is, is at the end of the day, if you're only thinking about earthly fortune, you're going to be eternally poor but you can actually send your wealth ahead of you, which I realize does not sound very theologically sound, but it's a modern way of saying what Jesus was saying. He said, you have influence in your eternal economy. The difference between gifts and rewards, we'll get to that later. Let's dig into this crazy story. I have a hard time with contrasting parables. Comparing parables, easier for me. Comparing parables is where Jesus gives you a good hero and he takes a good lesson from a good example and says, imitate this. I'm like, I'm on it. That's how I'm trained to work. I cheer for the good guys and I want to be like the good guys. I boo the bad guys and I don't want to be like them. Here's a story that's a a, a contrasting parable. This is where he gives you a bad example but brings a good lesson out of it. That's much harder for me to do in life, probably for you too, because you realize there's two reasons why God puts people in your life, only two. One is to give you a good example to imitate. You know what the other one is? Is to give you a bad example to not imitate, and in that way, you can learn something from everybody, and here's the reality. You are also all the time providing either good examples or bad examples in the lives of the people that you're within, but God can redeem all of those relationships and we can learn from all of them. I happen to like to learn better when the good character wins. Now, in a good movie, you know, they want you to really, they want you to feel empathy and sympathy for the good guy and they want you to not like the bad guy or the bad gal. And so throughout the movie, they write these characters to either do things that make you feel a certain kind of way about them. Maybe you like 
high-grade modern cinema like professional wrestling. And I know there's tons of you in here that you're really, and I'm going to lose almost all of you on this analogy, but in the wrestling world, in the theater of wrestling, there's good guys and gals and there's bad guys and gals, and they call the good guys and gals baby faces. And they want the crowd to cheer for them and applaud for them and be happy when they win and be frustrated when they lose. And then there's the bad guys and bad guys co- girls called the heels. And they're supposed to make you hate them. Because why? You will pay money to watch the story play out if there's good plot. Where it gets complicated is if a bad guy or gal or a heel starts to behave in such a way you start to have some sympathy for them. Have you ever watched a very complex movie where the villain in the movie, the director at some point pulls layers back and you're like, oh, I'm starting to feel a different kind of way about that person. The poor Joker. You were thinking the same thing? We were on the Joker wavelength? Okay. Yeah, the poor Joker, he had such a bad upbringing. Maybe that's, you know, and you're wanting to sit down and be, you know, be a psychiatrist and be like, this is why he's going around doing lots of rated R things to people. You know, like, this is why he's ruining all of Gotham. And now I have sympathy for him. Well, it's hard for me to go inside of this story and see this guy that's doing all this wrong stuff. And then Jesus says, there's something about him that is admirable and Christians should be more like him. And I'm like, no, that doesn't work for me. That's too hard. I'm going to skip this parable and go on to the next one. But I had to come back to it this week. So here it is. I will read it, and I'm going to do different than I did in the first service. I will, we're going to read through the whole thing, but I'll pause at different points to make sure we understand the plot. And I'm going to try and make you as uncomfortable with it as I am because Jesus pays it off for us with some clarity. Here we go. Uh, first verse in chapter 16. Jesus told this story to... Now, this is when you're doing Bible study, this is really important. You've got to know who he's talking to. He told this story to... His disciples. Here's what you wouldn't get if you just airdropped into this verse without reading the previous two chapters. They weren't the only people in the room. He had just got done telling a couple other stories, parables, to the Pharisees, the wealthy, upper-class, ruling Jews. They're still in the room. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to eavesdrop. And Jesus knows they're eavesdropping. So here's the dynamic. He turns from them to his disciples and he's teaching to them, but he's aware other people are listening in. I have two boys. This happens all the time. If they're in the same room at the same time, sometimes I'm directing a word to one of the boys about something usually that's going wrong. And the other boy is, I can feel their eyes. They're watching. How's this going to play out? What intel can I gather to leverage to my advantage down the road? You know? Jesus is aware that there's others listening in. He told the stories of his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. So here's the plot. Here's the two main characters. You got a certain rich man. How rich was he? So rich that he could employ somebody to handle all of his business. What did that mean? This guy had all of his checking account passwords, usernames. This guy could sign his name on checks. This executive manager, this CFO type person, was given absolute trust by the rich man. The rich man was so wealthy, he needed a full-time employee just to handle the business. And he was so detached from the day-to-day operations that he didn't even, it was blind trust. There was not ongoing meetings, there was no records, there was no Excel or QuickBooks. He's just giving blind trust to this guy and saying, here's a stamp, you can sign my name. The the technical term is he could represent this executive manager, 
this white collar guy, could represent the owner by proxy in all business dealings. Okay? One day, though, it changes. One day, a report came to the rich man, and it apparently is a very credible report. One of the other employees kind of goes around him and goes right to the boss and says, you need to know this manager is wasting your money. Now, this is key. He starts, the accusation is what? He is wasting his money. Same word, if you go back to the parable of the prodigal son, have you heard that story? The prodigal son wants out, but he wants all his inheritance, and so the dad in the story says, you know what, here's your inheritance, and it says the prodigal son went to the big city, and, and he wasted his inheritance on indulgent living. It's the same word, that wasting and this wasting, same word. So what was he doing? We don't know exactly, but overspending, being sloppy, cooking the books probably, probably using a lot of the income without documenting and just using it for personal life, personal spending, tripling his per diem, you know, using business money for personal expenses. He was wasting it. So rich man has a staff meeting, one-on-one. The employer called him in and said, what's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you're going to be fired. Does that seem like a reasonable reaction to you? I don't think it is. This guy has access to my signature, my bank accounts, all my wealth, and it's been proven that this guy is untrustworthy. And here's what he tells him. You're going to have two weeks And here's how we're going to make this right. Before you leave, I need you to do a self-audit. I need you to put in writing all, I need you to document just how much of my money has been wasted. And after you give me that report, you're going to be fired. I don't think that's good business. I'm not giving that guy another hour with my password. If that happened in today's day, that type of white-collar crime, if someone in your office or in your business is proven to be cooking the books and benefit, you know, mismanaging the company money, are they going to get two weeks to do a personal audit? If they're not faithful with your money, how accurate is the report going to be? But this rich man, which is why one of the reasons I don't think the rich man is supposed to represent God in the story, It's kind of one of these like, hey, fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, shame on me. He's setting himself up to be fooled twice. But he says, listen, here's the reality. Here's how I want you to hear this. He's saying, listen, your time at this job is coming to an end very soon. You have a finite amount of time to get your affairs in order, and then you're going to be evicted from this job. Now, here's what's at stake. In this day and age, the listeners of the story would have understood that this type of a manager, for that wealthy of a magnate, Everything that manager had in his life, his paycheck, his benefits, his home, because this kind of a manager would have been given a home within the estate that he was managing to live in rent-free as part of his compensation. When the job ends, his paycheck ends, his benefits are severed, he's evicted and now he's homeless. Here's what's worse. His reputation is now irreparably damaged. 
because he's well-known in that community. He's running all the business of the tycoon in town. Everybody who's anybody has done business with this tycoon, lending, debting, expanding, networking. And so everybody's going to know when this manager is not living in the house anymore, they're going to know why he was evicted. And he's going to be, for all intents and purposes, unhirable. And a self-preservation instinct kicks in, and it's settling in his heart, I'm about to lose everything. Even everything, everything that I currently have comes from the owner. In fact, the better translation of the word manager in this passage is the word steward. I am a steward who is entirely dependent on everything from the owner. I've got a short amount of time to get ready for my next season. And that's kind of the pickle that he's in when we read verse three. The manager thought to himself, now what? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're like, all right, you got two weeks. Some of you might not even get that. Hey, clean out your desk. Here's where you got. Now what? This is self-preservation, basic instinct of the human heart. What do I need to do to make sure I'm going to be okay tomorrow? That's self-preservation. And when that's threatened and it's you and somebody else, it's going to be you. You'd be surprised what comes out of people when they feel like their tomorrow is threatened. Right? My boss has fired me, and now woe is me. I'm a white-collar guy. I went to an Ivy League college. I have a business degree. I can't go dig ditches. I can't go work in a warehouse. I'm not going to make lattes. I can't go paint or clean or work in the fields. I, I, I can't do that. A person of my education and wardrobe. I've got closets filled with vests. No, it's another story. I, and I'm too proud to beg. So he has a pretty good assessment of his own. There's certain things I'm not going to do because that's not who I am. I'm not a beggar. That's almost like he's saying, what do I have at my disposal? What resources do I have? I'll even say it this way. What expiring resources do I have? Aha! I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So see where his mind goes. It's self-preservation. I'm going to say it this way, and I'm going to plant a seed that you're going to either get this now or in a couple minutes. Here's what he's saying. I have been given notice that my status at this job is imminently coming to an end. And I have certain expiring resources at my disposal that if I'm shrewd, I can use to set up my future. And if I'm foolish, I'll waste it and then be homeless and have a terrible future. I need to do what I can now with what I have to make sure that I have a better future in front of me. Do you see that here? Now you're like, well, pastor, I, I see it, but it's kind of, it's, it, there's some evil going on. Yes, yes. And this is why this parable is so hard. But you have to see how even a corrupt person says, if I know my time's coming to an end, I best prepare for my future. Do you see that? He's laser focused on it. Now, here's what he does. He does not spend his time gathering evidence to exonerate himself because he knows he's guilty. Nor is he going to help his employer out at all. 
Here's what he does, verse 5. He invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. And if you're like me, you're wondering, how does his boss not know? How can he let this guy get away with it? Well, simple. They, don't keep, they didn't keep paper records. It was all trust. It's not like the boss could like log on at home and be like, man, there's a lot of money missing. He's, you know, he's down at the outlets again, you know, loading up on vests. We better, we better clamp. I'm sorry, guilty conscience. It is a clamp, you know, we've got to clamp down on this guy. He's just given blind trust. And so within that gives this guy a lot of wiggle room to abuse his lack of integrity. So here's what he does. He invites some debtors in. Now, when the debtors come in, who do they owe money to? The executive or the owner? They owe the owner. Who is given the bill collecting responsibilities? The manager. Now watch what he does. You may end up admiring it. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. Let me give you perspective. This would take 150 olive trees nine years to produce 800 gallons of oil. From the moment you plant an olive tree in the ground, it takes 20 years to mature to give you one harvest. Jewish families, when a, a male child would, was born, would plant 12 olive trees so that by the time that they were a young adult, they would have some type of business to be able to maintain. The Garden of Gethsemane had uh, about a dozen olive trees, 10 of which remain today. This man owed the equivalent of nine years yield from 150 olive trees. That's a lot. So here's what the manager does. He kind of looks over here, looks over there. And like, like the shady car salesman, he kind of slides the paper across the table. He goes, take the bill. And do you see the next word? Quickly. Isn't that interesting? He knows he's doing something wrong because it's got to get done quickly. When you were stealing cookies from the cookie jar, you didn't take your time. You had a lookout and you went fast. Now, it's interesting. Could the executive have used his own handwriting to adjust the bill? Think about this now. Pastor, that's evil. It's shrewd is what he's doing. You take the bill and you change it to 400 gallons. Now, if you're the debtor and you're sitting here with this joker and he just wipes your debt in half, how are you feeling in this moment? I'm happy. I'm overjoyed. And in the haze of that joy, there's also a couple other things that have taken place here. Now... Who does the debtor owe? He owes the manager a huge favor because in this culture, it was a, I scratch, you, you scratch my back, I scratch yours culture. It was a disgrace to not pay someone back for their favors. So what the manager figured out for himself is I'm going to shift their indebtedness from the owner to me. And he did a second thing here. He made them co-conspirators in a crime. Because he said, you t accessory, you take the bill and you write it in your handwriting because he's playing, he's thinking ahead. Shrewd people think ahead. And he's thinking to himself, I need to make sure all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. Yeah, he might owe me because in, a, in two weeks, I'm going to need some friends because all my friends are going to dry up. They're not going to have anything to do with it. I'm going to need a friend to have a place to stay and to have work. 
And why would they give it to me unless they owe me? So I'm gonna use what resources I have right now to set up future friendships that can ensure for me a good future. And so on the one hand, I'm gonna make sure they know they owe me, but on the second hand, if they try and wiggle out of it, I'm gonna hold something over their head. Well, no, I'm not gonna pay you back. I can't, that, that, that was illegal. No, you, that's on you. And he's gonna say, well, let, interestingly enough, let's pull out the receipt here. Whose handwriting is that? Well, that, I don't recognize that hand. Isn't that your handwriting? And if we go to court, It's going to be my word against yours, and it's your handwriting on this paper. This is called embezzlement. And he's basically saying, not only do you now owe me, but if you ever try and renege on the favor you owe me, I'll take you to court. Extortion. And you're like, oh, that's terrible. It's clever. That's terrible. He was forward thinking. He was laser focused on his future, and he was manipulating and leveraging every expiring resource and opportunity and password that he had to set up friends for the future. And it doesn't stop there. Having one guy under his influence wasn't enough. Here's another guy that comes in. How much do you owe my employer? He asked the next man. I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat was the reply. Now, have you ever seen a bushel basket? Right? We're talking about wheat, not apples or corn. Do you know how little wheat gets once you harvest it and you? A thousand bushel baskets of that? That's 100 acres yield that it would have taken. That's a lot of acres. I'm not a master on acreage, but that's a lot of acres. Now he says to this guy, take the bill, same pattern. You take the bill and change it to what? Now how much did he reduce the first guy's debt? Half. This guy only reduces it by 20%, and I know you're thinking like, well, what is Jesus trying to say? Here's the answer. I have no idea. I don't know why one guy's debt was reduced by 50%, the other guy by 80%, but the result was the same. This debtor is now indebted to the manager and owes him a favor, and it's now in his writing. So this manager in this these last few moments of his time in this job said, I better use what limited expiring resources I have to set up my future. And now I'm leaving this place with future connections. I know I'm going to be able to have a home to live in. I'm going to have wealth. And I've got all of the leverage that I used here so that when the 15th day comes and I'm out of here, I have friends to welcome me into my next home. But what a crooked, crooked guy. Well, wait until, I want, I want to tell you, the owner finds out that he does this. Let's find out, what, I bet the owner's going to have something to say about it. Here's what the owner says when he finds out. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal. Did you know that word was in there? In the NLT it is, the little rascal, right? For being so shrewd. Did you, ex- well, you, if, if you hadn't read this story before, do you expect that to be the end of the story? Now, what does that tell you about the character of the rich man? What values does he admire? Savvy? Shrewdness. Oh, that rascal has defrauded me out of tens of millions of dollars. Oh, but I admire him. Man after my own heart. So the people who want to read into this story and say, we can't teach this because the rich man is God. The rich man is Jesus. No, it's not. Just because Jesus talks about an owner, not every owner in his story is a type of Christ. So we have to be astute enough to say, he's not trying to tell you that God is like this. He's just concocting 
a fictional character for this dynamic relationship. And at the end of the story, when the rich man finds out, you're thinking, well, man, I bet he cl- he admires the guy. He's like, oh, that rascal. Man after my own heart. He's so shrewd. And with that period, parable ends. End of the parable. And Jesus now is going to start talking about the parable. And now I'm expecting him as a reader to just clobber both of these guys. Here's what he says. And it is true that the children of this world, the people who are like the manager in this story, they are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of light. What? This offends me. Because in one category, Jesus is saying, He's contrasting the children of the world and the children of light. I don't want this to be, uh, you know, mystical for you. Children of this world is a collective term Jesus was using to describe people who did not have a right relationship with the one and true God at that time, and we can push that forward to today. Children of the light was a phrase used commonly in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to describe people who were in right relationship with God, whether it was God's chosen people, Israel in the Old Testament, or all believers, regardless of ethnicity in the New Testament. Light and dark is a, par- is a contrast to the whole Bible. So what Jesus is saying is that when it comes to the quality of shrewdness, People of the world excel in this and do better in being shrewd than children of the light. And you're thinking, so is Jesus telling me that I should just go around manipulating people for future gain? If so, I'm in good shape. I've been doing it all my life, right? No, I hope you're not thinking that. But it's kind of like, what is he saying? What isn't he saying? I don't know if you've ever read the Bible and been like, okay, I'm reading this, I certainly hope it doesn't mean what I think it's saying. Have you ever read a passage like that? Like, here's what it says, here's what the words are. Maybe it's one of those passages where it's not what it seems. There's some extra lesson here. And I'm kind of hoping in this story that there is, because I'm like, I don't know how to digest this. But I think it's, and you probably already got here because your mind might work better than mine does. Jesus is not admiring or complimenting the villain in the story for his villainy, which I think is a, one of those despicable me movie terms from Gru. Uh, so we'll use that. Uh, but he's not complimenting him for his villainy per se. He's complimenting him for his shrewdness. Shrewd is a category that is a characteristic that Jesus is holding up here. And what he's doing is he's contrasting. And it'll come out clearly here. Let me keep reading. Verse nine, here's the lesson. Now, this is cool. You can read a lot of Jesus' parables and we don't get a follow-up discussion. Here's the lesson, boys and girls. He tells the parable, he ends the story and then he moves on. Everybody's like, wait a minute, what? Huh? Jesus, we heard you. We have a lot of follow-up questions and he just moves on. This is one of those rare moments where he says, here's the lesson. Here's what I mean. Let me translate for you. And I don't know that it makes it any easier to hear. Here's what he says, use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when a time in the future comes when your possessions are gone, they, the friends you made in this life, will welcome you to an eternal home. And here's what that kind of sounds like. I'm just gonna put it in raw English. 
Use money to make a friend. Use your money to make friends that will be a welcome, welcoming committee for you when you get to heaven. Use your money to buy friends. So there will be a welcoming committee when you get to heaven. You're like, I hope he doesn't mean that because that sounds bad, but that's what he means. And you're like, Pastor, I'm uncomfortable with the phrase buy friends. Me too. Because I have a very worldly understanding of what that's like. If I suggested to you to go out and buy friends with your money, I don't want to push that too far because we get into a TMI conversation very fast. But I think it has a bad connotation in our mind. Like we, we're not sincere that we would be using wealth, advantage, property, access to vacation homes or properties to simply make ourselves feel a void in our life through friendship by using wealth to get that for us selfishly. Jesus is putting a different and a healthy understanding on this and saying, you have worldly resources which can be invested in making eternal friends. He's talking about, I was going to say money laundering, but whatever the reverse of that is, taking earthly money and washing it to make it for holy purposes. He's not talking about using your money to buy a big social network around you. He's talking about using your resources to invest in other people's lives in such a way that it puts them in better proximity to the message of the gospel so that one day when you get to heaven, there will be a harvest of souls that are there because of your willingness to be generous with your earthly resources. Verse 10, if you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. This is a huge principle he's going to drop on you right here. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. What, What does he mean there? Here's what he means. He means that your money doesn't determine your character. It reveals your character. Faithful people, you're faithful whether you have a lot of little or in the middle. Unfaithful people, you're unfaithful whether you have a lot or little or in the middle. He deals with this idea of Jesus, the reason I can't live shrewdly, the reason I don't give away to help is I don't have enough. You've not given me enough money, enough health, enough talent, enough ability. But if you just give me more, my character would change. I remember one time someone serious as a heart attack came up to me before a church service when we were still meeting in the high school. And it was right when we were uh, casting vision that, like, look, it's been great to be in here for five, six, seven years. But we believe that God wants us to be in a more permanent space so that we can expand our ministry to the community. And we were talking about what that would cost and how we're going to participate. And one sweet young lady, serious as a heart attack, came up to me before church one of those mornings and said, Pastor, I wanted to tell you this. If I win the lottery, I will buy you a church. And she meant it with all her heart. And this poor, cynical pastor almost said, but thank God I didn't. No, you won't. That's a very rude thing to say to someone who's promising their hypothetical lottery to you. But what I know, because I've walked with Jesus long enough, is that if you're not faithful with the 10 bucks you have now, what makes you think you're going to be faithful with 10 billion? It's not the amount of resource we have that determines our character. Our character is simply revealed by how we treat our resources. And this is what Jesus is saying here. If you're faithful in little things, now, here's what's interesting. You want to interpret the parable? What does he mean by little things? What's the little things he illustrates in the parable that somebody was unfaithful in? Money. Do you understand in Jesus' world, it's a little thing? It's a thing, but it's little. 
If you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. If you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. In other words, the way we manage and steward and save and spend and invest and lend and borrow money reveals our character, and that character is the driving force behind sending eternal wealth ahead of us. And he's saying this is why if you mismanage money, don't expect that in eternity you're going to be commensurately rewarded. Because why should you expect to have a big reward when you've mismanaged? There's, some, there's a whole other sermon there i got to pass. Verse 11. And if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? He's contrasting in this story. You have a worldly owner who compliments a worldly manager for worldly wisdom. We have a spiritual owner. We are spiritual stewards. We want him to compliment us for spiritual wisdom. Okay? Verse 12, and if you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? And now he's going to bring you a familiar verse. Here we go, verse 13. No one, have you heard this? No one can serve two masters. Now you know the context. You'll either hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. That's why you can't serve, watch this, you can't serve your eternal reward and be enslaved to temporary rewards. You can't fully go after your eternal goals while you're under the direction and the pressure and the management and the consumption of your earthly goals with respect to money. And I will just tell you that is true. It is true. It is true. In no way, shape, or form is Jesus diminishing the value of his disciples, of us, having earthly goals, having an earthly awareness of retirement and saving and spending. All of those things are important, but if we're not careful, our natural drift will be completely consumed by that to the point where it will interfere with your passion for eternal goals, eternal things. I'm almost out of time, so let me skip to the application part. A couple things that I pulled out of this. Number one, it's wise for disciples of Jesus to use their money with the future in mind. Okay? It's wise, if you're a disciple of Jesus, to understand you have a limited time in your life to prepare for your earthly future, your spiritual future. Let me take the low-hanging fruit first. How many years do we really have to plan for retirement, for the days when we're not going to go and work for income? You have maybe 40, 30 years to work for that. Some of you are like, I'm never going to retire. Well, that's how you feel today, friend. You might not feel that way. Your body might not let you do that. How do you know you'll be able to work at this capacity in the future, Pastor, you're terrifying me. It's okay. You have access to Dave Ramsey. I'm, I'm going to scare you right to him. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But the Bible talks about it is wise for you, even in the Old Testament, don't eat all your crops. Leave some margin. In fact, you know, this is why I remember we talked about why it was such a big deal for Jewish women to have children because that was their 401k. Have a lot of kids so that in the future, when you can't work anymore, you have the ability to live and not be a burden on everybody. The Bible says it is wise for us to budget with your future in mind. Because if not, here's how you're going to treat your money. With today in mind or yesterday in mind? You're going to treat your money to deal with the debt that you accumulated yesterday, or you're just going to, hey, I can't even think about the future. I'm in my 20s. I've got my whole life ahead of me. Let's spend, 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 spend. Ikea, Ikea, Ikea. Let's just, you know, whatever, whatever, travel, whatever. 
okay. But if you only look at today, when you get to your future, not going to be a very happy one. But it's also wise for us to treat money with our eternal future in mind. Okay? With our eternal future in mind. And it's summed up, I think, better. Here, number, the, the, the second application point is, is kind of the crux of this whole thing for me. I want to make sure you get this. So if you've, if you've been daydreaming, come back. Please come back. This is where I need you. This is the part that I think will really help you. Here's what Jesus is teaching us. Disciples of Jesus ought to pursue their, their eternal spiritual goals with more passion and more devotion, with more shrewdness, forward thinking, ingenuity, and urgency than unbelievers pursue their temporary life goals. Often this is not the case. This is not the case. Here was the problem that Jesus was saying. He's saying when it comes to leveraging your current resources for your future, unbelievers go after this with more shrewdness than believers go after their eternal spiritual goals. And if believers would chase after eternal spiritual goals with the same ferocity, shrewdness, forward thinking, ingenuity, passion, laser focus, and desire, we would live in a different county. We would live in a much different earth. But by comparison, he's saying children of light don't think about how today's decisions relate to our eternity like unbelievers do. I've sat in airports getting on and off airplanes around businessmen and businesswomen. I've been around some driven people. Go listen to any of the popular TED Talk wealth guys, Cardone or any of these other guys. They look down at people who sleep, who rest. They are laser focused on success and we drink it in. I want to have their life. And they tell you, work, 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 work. Deals, 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 deals. Ideas. Earn, 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 earn. Invest, save. And we drink it in and they are laser focused. They are shrewd because they're trying to amass for them a more comfortable tomorrow at all costs to have a certain amount of wealth so that their future is taken care of and they can relax and they can enjoy the benefits of their labor. I've been in airports around people who are on their phone trying to make deals until the moment the door closes and they have to turn it off. And then they're like caged animals, fidgeting. And the moment they can get their phones out, they're on there and they're back on the phones, back on the email. They're driven, 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 driven. They're shrewd. And so are some of us when it comes to business, when it comes to wealth, when it comes to empire, when it comes to our net worth. We are driven. We're consumed. Jesus is saying if a lost and dying world is capable of being that shrewd for lost and dying resources, can you imagine what it would be like if the children of life have a reversal of values and they are even more shrewd about their pursuit of souls for the kingdom? That's the point he's making here. He's holding up a bad example, taking a good lesson, saying if, a, if an unbeliever can be that motivated for things that perish, shouldn't we as believers? Don't we as believers know that they're not being fired? Don't we know that there's coming a day where we won't be employed on this earth anymore? Don't you know that? There is coming a day. When our employment here will end, our home here, will, will, we will be evicted from this home in the best possible way. Don't you realize you and I also have expiring resources of opportunity, of money, of gifts, of talents? It's different for all of us, but you have them. 
If you know that there is an expiration date on your residency here and on the resources that you have and that what you do between today and that day will determine your next season, wouldn't you be wise to leverage every possible thing you have to set up your future? Well, that's what we hold up about the guy in the story. He did it in a crooked way, but we kind of get it. It was worldly wisdom, it was worldly wealth, but he's like, look, I know that this show is coming to an end and I'm not gonna just sit around with my feet up. I'm gonna do everything I can with what I have to make sure my tomorrow is better. Why don't we treat our eternal future with that same kind of shrewdness and passion? That's because we live in this world and the natural drift of our heart is not to that. It's because we think we have more time. There's not urgency there. It's because we have excuses like, but I'm so consumed by this, that, or if I had more, if I had more time. Friend, that's really not the hang-up. You have time for whatever you tell your time you have it for. What he is telling us is that we would be wise to to use our resources to invest in relationships with people that advance the gospel in their life, to live wisely among unbelievers, engaging them in conversations where we're learning their story and we're finding out about where where our story and Jesus's story intersect in lives. It's doing it personally. It's also investing our time and resources in big movements and efforts that help this all over the world. You do realize that when you give money to a missionary, And one soul is added to the kingdom through that missionary's ministry. Whether or not you ever met that convert, do you know there is a reward for that? This would be a good time to say this. You know the difference between a gift and a reward? Do you know? When you're thinking in today's society, those are kind of mutually tradable words. Gifts are sometimes rewards. I know, unfortunately, I treat that in my own house that way because I'm like, I need something to hold over my boys' heads in the month of December every year to make sure they know these gifts that you think are coming can be revoked with bad behavior. So they kind of turn into a reward and it's bad parenting. Save your emails, I already know. Um, But do you understand God defines gift and reward differently? Gift is something that is given without any expectation of return and it's not based on the performance or deservedness of the recipient. It's based entirely on the character of the giver. God's gifts are not based on my performance or my resume. I don't deserve them. They're better than what I deserve. He gives them because of him, not because of me. He gives them based on his character, not because of mine. Now, what are two of the big gifts? Salvation is a gift. You cannot earn it. You do not deserve it. It is freely given. Praise God. Praise him, because I would never be able to earn it. Another one is heaven. Heaven is a gift. Your access to heaven is a gift freely given to you and to me. It is a gift. I cannot earn it. It's in the benefits package that I can't opt out of. Wouldn't it be nice if we could sit down next to everybody when the moment they make a decision and be like, now that you've made a decision, let me open up your benefits package. Here's all the stuff you get. Take advantage of all of it. It's all yours. That's a gift. There's also a different way of exchange, and it's called reward. Now, what's different about a reward from a gift? It's earned. Your performance has influence in how much or how little you get. You can, uh, you can perform or merit in such a way that you get a big reward or no reward. Here's the question. Which of these two does God traffic in, gifts or rewards? The Bible teaches both. Gifts of salvation, gifts of heaven. But Paul in his letters especially tips us off 
as does Hebrews, as does Second Chronicles, that God is a rewarder. Old Testament, the eyes of the Lord search to and fro, looking for someone that he can share his blessings with. Hebrews, he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder. And Paul says that we believers, if we're disciples of Jesus, when it comes time for judgment, we are not going to stand before the great white throne judgment, which is where unbelievers will stand. Our, our, uh, we have been, we've received salvation. Our name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and we will face a different kind of judgment, and it's not to decide whether we get in or out of heaven. We all get access to heaven. But the Bible is clear that we won't all be equal equally rewarded that when we the believer's judgment is kind of a time of accountability you'll see this all through the parables where God will basically want he will look and assess what we've done with what God gave us individually not as a group individually Paul gives us an image to try and understand it he says all of the things we've done will be somehow visually represented in front of the Lord all of our works everything that we've done In other words, our potential reward, our potential payout, so to speak. It will be tested with fire. And things that didn't pass the test of motivation, of purity of heart, those things will dissolve. But the things that were done for the Lord for the right reasons, those good reports that we bring, here's what I did with what you gave me, they will survive and they will be translated into reward. And it also says some will be saved, but just as those barely escaping the flames. Now, I didn't write this. The Bible does. And I've said this before. I would much rather be in the low class of heaven than be wealthy in hell if I have to pick. I mean, I don't know what heaven is like, but the pavement is the best commodity we have here on earth. So it's got to be good. But I have influence in my eternal reward. Well, that's kind of mean. No, it's not. God tells you, I'm going to share everything I have with you and I'm going to give it all out. You want it? Do what you can with what I've given you. That's all you need to do. Do your best with what I've given you to advance the kingdom. Very plain. Now, if you believe that Jesus' assessment and report of what heaven is like is a little bit more accurate than your imagination, you probably ought to lean into this. And then go back through your excuses and your reasons for how you divide up and use your resources now and say, am I wisely thinking about my eternal home? When I step before the Lord to give an account with what I've done with my years, my time, my opportunities, my employment, my money, my relationships, how will I stand to be rewarded? And I know some of us are like, well, what kind of reward? Like my son, I was like, hey, I'm going to have a surprise for you if you finish this up. Well, what kind of surprise? That's going to determine whether or not I obey or not. If the surprise is good enough, I'm in. If not, I'm out. So you're like, I hear crowns, and I'm not really a jewelry person. I hear, you know, this and that and the other thing. And you're thinking, eh, listen, they're all metaphors. I have no idea. I just trust that it's that good. I don't need to ask any more questions. In fact, if I could imagine it, it's going to be a disappointment. I want something that can't fit in my imagination. That's being selfish. Nope, that's being eternally motivated. So what are you doing? What am I doing? Better question, what do you have? Do you even know? What are your resources? What's God given you? What's he opened up for you? And what are you doing with it? And is eternity anywhere in that pecking order? And then number three, 
disciples understand. And I really wrestled with this, but I really, I think, I wrestled with how to say this. But I believe this accurately aligns with the scripture, okay? Disciples understand we can send our money, not in its currency form. We can send our money, or you could call it your wealth, your treasure, ahead of us to heaven by investing our treasure, our money, our physical resources in people and projects that advance the gospel here. What if you were just one degree more shrewd about applying your resources now to things that matter eternally as you are compared to the things that matter temporally? We need to mind both. Some people want to push us into all or nothing. The danger is this could become a poverty gospel message where we say the only way is to live with nothing, give it all away, and the more you give away, the holier you are. Well, that's a warping of the gospel. That's not what the Bible teaches. Remember, it's not where your money goes, it's what your heart wants, right? The Bible doesn't teach that we all need to live in poverty and give it all away. It talks about shrewdness. Some of us, our prayer today is, God, I agree in the truth of this, but when I'm looking at the appetite of my heart, it doesn't beat for this, and I want it to. I recognize that my appetite, my hunger to live that way is pretty low because the type of reorienting in my life seems too drastic for me to embrace. What I would say to you is, number one, it's appropriate for you to pray, God, I, I want to want to do this and live this way. But the second thing I say is embrace this as a process or as a journey. I would not say thrust yourself into some extreme cold turkey form of this. You're going to go cash out everything in your checking account into $10 bills and give it all away to people indiscriminately this afternoon. Please, please don't hear me saying that. But it's probably worth all of us having a conversation with God about this where we listen as much as we talk. I would also say almost as good is to have a conversation with another human about this and just process through with them, another believer preferably. Because unbelievers you can talk to about this, but it's going to sound really, you're, it's going to sound a little foolish. I mean, think about the whole Christianity. is like, hey, uh, come follow Jesus and be just like one person. Conformity. Right? You can't be anything you want. Do anything you want. As the world says, do, you know, do whatever you want. Be whoever you are. If you work hard enough, you can do it. Well, there's, no, you can't. It sounds really, well, you can't say that today. Why? Because it's offensive to the world. Come follow Jesus and do what? Be anything I want? No, be just like him. Okay, so on the one hand, I can be anything that I want, or in exchange, I can be just like this? No, thank you. I'll pick this. Okay, which planet do you want to live on? You want to live on a planet of everybody can be anything they want, however they want, at whatever rate they want, or where they're all altogether loving, altogether kind, altogether compassionate, motivated by what's best for other people. Oh, I want that planet. Now it's not so foolish. That's what you want to be like. But if this is settling in your heart and you're dealing with some of the, the discomfort of this passage, I'm kind of leaving you hanging here because I don't have a section in this passage of here's the eight ways you walk this out tomorrow. Because I think the better exercise is for you to do that as your homework. Because it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. First of all, you're probably already doing this in some measure. So water what is natural to you. And ask the Holy Spirit to help your appetite to inspire some activity and whatever this looks like for you. But at the end of the day, any investment in relationships with an eternal motive in mind is something that falls into this category whether it's 
picking up coffee. or a meal. Some of you have the budget you could take someone out for a meal every week of this year. Some of you have a budget you can take someone out for coffee once this whole year. You're not going to be judged on the other's resources. What can you do with what you have? How can you invest in relationships for eternity so that when we get to heaven, there's a huge welcoming committee of people. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians when he's taking a missionary offering. He's saying to the Corinthian church, I'm not trying to extract from you an offering from your unwilling hearts and take money out of your kung fu grip fists. I'm simply trying to set you up for God to credit to your account your portion of the reward for those that will be saved through this money. You know what that means? Every dollar that you put into God's kingdom that directly or indirectly relates to something rewardable in eternity, he credits you for that. That's crazy. He keeps really good records, so you don't have to. He's telling you, my goal is to reward you. Here's the pathway. I don't need that. I'll take a look. If God wants to do it, I'm on board with it. But he needs to deal with our hearts. Amen? Worship team, why don't you come? Let's pray. Most important question I have today is, not about your money, it's about you. Are you Are you ready for your eternal home? Are you ready? What do I mean by that? Do you know that Jesus has saved you? Have you confessed to him? Have you repented before him? Does the Holy Spirit live inside of you? There's this awesome revelation we get in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is a down payment on our future inheritance. What that means is that anytime you feel insecure or doubtful about your future with God, if you can still recognize the Holy Spirit alive and at work, and then you just remember that is God's down payment to you of a guarantee of your future reward. If you're not connected to God the Father, then regardless of what you do with your money and your time and your resources, you can't merit your way into heaven. You're not saved to do works. You're saved for good works. So I just want to boil it down to this. There are many of you in the room who say, I am ready. I'm ready. And the reason why you say that is because you've experienced salvation. You've confessed your belief about yourself, that you're a sinner, about Jesus, that he can and will save you. You've confessed that to him. And you've turned away from being your own leader. You've repented. And that's why you're sure you've experienced salvation. That's where this journey starts. And so I just want to give a simple opportunity, whether you're watching online or listening to our podcast or you're here live in our sanctuary on Campbell Boulevard, I just want to invite you into a relationship with God through Jesus. Here's what that looks like. Believe and repent. Believe you need to be saved because you're sinful and you know you should be living a better life that you're not capable of doing on your own. Believe that Jesus can save you, that he has the ability because he defeated death and sin through his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And you believe he will save you if you ask him. And you Pair that with a desire to repent, to turn away from being your own leader, from living life by your set of right and wrong, and you surrender that to Jesus, and you say, I'm going to bow my life to your leadership. And if that's what you really are feeling in your heart, all you do is you put that in the words and you confess it to him. You can do that right now. 
confess your belief. Tell him of your desire to repent in this moment. And he is hearing you. He is forgiving you. He is saving you. You are receiving his spirit to live inside of you. His spirit does all the heavy lifting of transforming us day by day into the image of Jesus. If you need me to be more specific, here's a little prayer you can pray. I can't pray it for you. You can pray it for yourself. And for those of you who have heard me say this 150 times, I hope you could repeat this when God will bring an opportunity in your life to help someone take this step. Simple prayer that says, Jesus, I believe I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. I believe you can save me and I believe you will save me. So please forgive me for my sins. I put my faith and my trust in you. I welcome you, Holy Spirit, to live in my life. Today I'm choosing to step away from the throne of my life and I'm inviting you to sit there and take my place. You are the Lord, I'm your servant. You're the leader, I'm your follower. I look forward to day by day, gradually becoming the resemblance of Jesus. Your name I pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with Him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.